Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth and speaking up when it matters most. We are doing this on Colin, a social podcasting app that allows us sometimes to take questions from listeners. I'm thrilled to welcome a guest today who you have seen on television through the years. This is Rick Stengel. He was former managing editor of Time magazine. During the Obama administration, he was the Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy. He is an expert in all things international relations, foreign affairs, global politics, disinformation, you name it. Rick's been there. I'm excited to have him on the program today to talk a bit about what we are seeing in Ukraine, but we could go a lot of different directions. So, Rick, first, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Miles. I'm glad to be with you. And I just want to disabuse anyone of the idea that I'm an expert on anything. You know, I, <laughs> I, I spent most of my life as a journalist where you try to become an expert in a few days on something and you'd know more than probably the people who were reading your stories. But um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to all of those subjects. So um, Fine. He's 5,000 miles wide and an inch deep. So we're going to go all around the world okay. <laughs> and, uh, and touch it all. And, and Rick, I'd love to ask you just at the kickoff here. I know a couple of weeks ago uh, you were in Eastern Europe and getting somewhat close to the front lines here of what's quickly becoming in many ways more than just a local conflict between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, this has enormous global implications. Um, you know, that that's an understatement. But uh, I want to know what you saw on that trip, what you heard, what surprised you being there in the region in such a tumultuous period. Yes, thanks for that, Miles. So I went to Poland to visit uh, the Ukrainian refugees coming in through Poland, where they have two and a half million refugees. And I went under the auspices of CARE, the Global uh, Humanitarian and Poverty Relief Organization, where I'm on the board. And I went with um, Michelle Nunn, who's the CEO, who's just a spectacular person. And CARE has a multi-million dollar relief effort in Poland for uh, refugees. And, and, the, the, and, you know, the humanitarian angle is very important. I'll get to that in a second. And it was very moving and... Uh, and the polls have been incredibly generous. I mean, there aren't even refugee centers per se, because almost all of those two and a half million refugees who've come into Poland have been taken in by Polish families. It's, it's not like they're putting them up in hotels or, or, you know, or erecting buildings or tents. So uh, the polls have been extremely generous and they need our support. But the larger geopolitical aspect of this, which you were kind of teeing up also in your question, is what you know putin is doing is a is the weaponization of refugees he did it in syria in 2014 2015 where that indiscriminate bombing created a wave of syrian refugees many of whom ended up in germany where germany accepted two million refugees he's hoping that refugees in europe will destabilize european democracies that's part of his strategy driving people out of Ukraine and driving them into those democratic border states that are also members of NATO, Poland, Romania, uh, uh, Bulgaria. Um, uh, I'm blanking on a couple more. The Baltic states that are getting getting people, too. So um, this is all part of a strategy to destabilize those countries. And um, and the way that we prevent that from happening is 
by even more international support for those countries that are that need the money and more infrastructure to help those refugees. Moldova was the com- company, the country I was just blanked on there for a second. Um, I mean, Moldova has a tiny population and I think has accepted, you know, like 500,000 refugees, which is like a quarter of its population. So um, these, these are, it's, it's dangerous, um, among other things. People need help. It's mainly women and children and their, and their mothers, grandmothers, mothers and children. And so um, I was happy to see that in the $33 billion request that the Biden administration made to Congress, there's several billion dollars for humanitarian efforts, but it's going to be a long-term thing, and we'll eventually need a kind of real Marshall Plan for Ukraine and to help people move back there. But it, you know, we're still very much in the middle of things. Well, Rick, I, you know, this in some ways is like the Syrian crisis, given how big the diaspora is and just how many people are, you know, fleeing the country, but different than Ukraine in that it it seems like we're going to have a lot more people that will want to go back home, that'll want to go back and rebuild Ukraine. Um, I know this is a very big question. What does it take to get there, right? When are we at the point where it feels like folks are going to go back into their home country? And And I know that a lot of that revolves around how this conflict ends. So I suppose the really massive question tucked inside yeah. there is how does this conflict end? When does it end to the point that you can rebuild Ukraine? Or are we in for a multi-decade militarized uh, east-west border there um, in the country? Yeah, that's a big, big question, Miles. And, and I'll, I'm going to start with the kind of short and medium term uh, because every single refugee I talked to, I asked, do you, do you want to go home? Do you want to go back to Ukraine? And every single one said yes. None of them wanted to leave. All of them want to go back. Uh, you know, Poland, for some similarities to Ukraine, I mean, they feel people feel like strangers in a strange land. They don't speak Polish. Uh, you know, Ukraine is a very nationalistic place. I went there several times when I was in the State Department around the annexation of Crimea in 2014. It's a it's a powerful place. It's a lovely place. It's a beautiful people. Um, and they'll want to go back. How it ends, you know, I, I, I've been talking about this on TV for a while. And I, and I you know, I find that, that, you know, sometimes people don't like what I have to say about it. But, you know, like ev- every war ends with a negotiation. And um, that is how war ends. And... Um, and there will be a negotiation between Russia and Ukraine, and and maybe the maybe the West and the United States will be part of it, although technically we're not parties to it. Um, and look, I, my dream would be a a you know a whole uh, Ukraine uh, not partitioned or divided in any way. Um, I certainly think, among other things, that Crimea should be part of Ukraine, but it's going to be hard to put that genie in the bottle. Um, with the concentration of Russian forces now in the east and south, I think Putin's strategy is he wants to turn that area into a kind of Russian protectorate uh, or give it kind of quasi-independence or autonomy. Uh, there can and probably will be negotiations around that. Um, Zelensky has said he's not, doesn't want to give up an inch of Ukraine. Um, 
But but the question is, what would allow Russia to have a ceasefire? Uh, what could Zelensky sell to his own people? And I think I think, look, you know, cutting cut ending the, you know, the massive uh, assault and war crimes that are killing hundreds of Ukrainians every day is a is a pretty big incentive to Ukraine. So um, I think it will carry on for quite a long time. I hope not decades. And I do think there will be negotiations around that Donbass region. Uh, Putin obviously wants a land path to Crimea and the Black Sea. Um, that they'll have they'll have to figure it out. Well, Rick, you know you're easily among the sort of leading folks here, thinking about the different directions this conflict could take, and without a doubt, a, a negotiated settlement that leads to an end in violence is an ideal outcome. But it's possible that there's quite some time between now and then, and some additional very contentious moments of escalation. I mean, we've heard rumors in recent days of Putin potentially thinking about targeting Moldova and trying to enter other territories uh, to claim them on behalf of Russia. What are sort of the wild cards you see out there that could take this conflict in a worse direction? And, and how realistic do you think a, uh, a deeper spiral here in the war is? Uh, something that spills over into a much wider regional war or a, or, or a bigger global conflict, God forbid. Yeah. Well, every, every day that the war goes on is a day where it could spill over to a wider conflict. That's part of the danger. And I've been wrong way more than I've been right about trying to put myself in Putin's shoes. I mean, the problem of putting yourself in Putin's shoes is that if you're a remotely rational human being, uh, you can't really tell what he's going to do. And... Um, it's funny you ask about Moldova. I, I interviewed Putin back in 2007, 2008, for when I was editor of Time, and, um, and 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 there's a real consistency to things. Everything that Putin has said, I think, if people really immerse themselves in what he's said, they would, you know, their, you know, your hair would stand up on end. And one of the things I remember he talked about back then in 2002, 2007, 2008, is that he's he's obsessed with the Russian diaspora. Um, he believes in, in this, this kind of uh, greater Russia. Um, it was in that interview that he famously said the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But if you unpack that, what that, what that really means for him is he believes that, that all of those states that were part of the Soviet Union are part of Russia, part of Ru Mother Russia, the Ruski Mir, as, as he calls it. And, and so Moldova, you know, he's messed with Moldova in Transnistria uh, because there are ethnic Russians living there. That's why he annexed Crimea, because there are ethnic Russians living there. Uh, you know, the Russian diaspora is large because people leave Russia. You know, I mean, look at the incredible exodus of like 10% of the IT personnel uh, in all of Russia since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. People don't want to be there. And and so, you know, that's not how Putin sees it. What Putin sees is he wants to sort of put the band back together. And so what you have with um, with Moldova you know, with the Baltics that were all part of the old Soviet Union. I mean, he would like to put the band back together. I, I think, you know, fortunately, 
those not those, you know, the Baltics and other countries on Russia's border, many of them now are members of NATO. And I think uh, I think as irrational as they sometimes can be, I don't think he wants to invade a NATO country. Um, you've seen how poorly the war has gone for him, how uh, how how crummy the kind of the Russian military has turned out to be. I mean, you know, he has a tired military and then you have these fresh, completely up to date NATO forces from the 30 odd NATO countries. I mean, that's not something he wants to risk. And even though he does ratchet up the rhetoric and talk about, um, you know, the, uh, some going nuclear, at least for tactical nuclear weapons, I mean, he he better than anybody knows that there's no winner there. So I think that's just what they, we used to call during the Cold War escalation dominance, where he's trying to scare people by by ratcheting up the rhetoric. Well, I, Rick, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the depletion of Russian forces. Uh, one estimate that I saw today was that there's, you know, 400 Russian soldiers going back in body bags every day. Or actually, I, I don't think a lot of them are even making it into body bags because the numbers are so big. But this also signals potentially a shift in our focus uh, as a country. And we saw that the other day with some really interesting comments from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who seemed to signal a major shift in America's goals in the conflict from you know helping to defend Ukraine to, in his words, uh, diminishing Russia's ability to do it again. So, you know, th there seems to be a new goal in this conflict for the United States, and that is to actively try to, uh, you know, attack Russian forces, not directly by the United States, but diminish Russia's capabilities. What do you make of that? And, and will that change Putin's response? You know, Miles, it's a good question. And I and I and when I heard Secretary Austin say that, I think I felt like he was uh, saying the quiet part out loud. And there was, I, I remember, a, 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 a very good, as, as his stories are always good, David Sanger piece in the New York Times, you know, the day later saying, you know, the careful modulated strategy as articulated by Secretary Austin. It's like, well, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think uh, you know, they may have spun you on that. Um, because that is a that is a different goal, and that is something that I think would be alarming to Putin. But at the same time, you know, Putin, as a lifelong member of Russia's military-industrial complex, like you know, uh, an authoritarian leader without an army uh, isn't going to be an authoritarian leader very much longer. And I, and at the end of the day, throughout military history, you know, generals and and leaders of countries have have wanted to protect and save their army. Um, uh, when the Nazis invaded, you know, uh, Moscow, you know, when Napoleon invaded Moscow, I mean, they they were stymied in their efforts and they retreated because they wanted to preserve and save their army. So um, uh, I, I think Putin ha has to be mindful of this. I think it's he does respond also to escalated rhetoric. Um, you know, there's lots of evidence of that from, you know, the Reagan era uh, that Russians respond to that. So, um, so, and, and by the way, you know, it's impossible to disagree with Secretary Austin's sentiments is that we want it, as he said, I think he said it very, very casually, you know, very informally, he said, we want to make sure he doesn't do this again to anybody else. Well, exactly right. 
That is what we want. And so um, how we get there, I, I, I'm not sure. But um, but again, from all the reports, and you've mentioned it, I mean, the, the Russian military is is much diminished. And I think that your point about the body bags, I mean, what eventually ended uh, the Russia um, Russian war in Afghanistan was just was those Russian body bags coming back and Russian mothers who love their sons, uh, you know, not feeling happy about it. What was the purpose of this war? Um, you know, Russian mothers, are, you know, are, are going to say, why, why did my son die with us invading the people that you say are our brothers and sisters? And my son had to die for that. I mean, it's, it's not an easy sell. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning that, you know, wars end with negotiated settlements, which is, is sort of unsatisfying to folks because something so egregious as this, you merely want to see Ukraine prevail and win and not justify any of Russia's actions by even giving them an inch. But at the end of the day, uh, you're right. For this to end at some point, both sides have to save face. So when you try to put yourself in Putin's shoes and imagine how he would be willing to see this conflict end, what is the scenario where he saves face and gets to declare some element of victory so that the conflict is over or so there's at least an extended ceasefire? What does that look like? What does he have to come away with to stop the bloodshed? So I'm going to give you my point of view of what I think would allow him to do that. I'm not saying that this is what should happen. And I'm also not saying that's what the Ukrainians should accept. Um, but I think if he can go back to the Russian people and sell the idea, hey, uh, there was this war against ethnic Russians in, uh, in the Donbass region, in Donetsk, uh, in these so-called people's republics, uh, we've stopped the uh, assault on ethnic Russians. That area is now uh, a uh, quasi-independent area that uh, uh, is both part of Ukraine and part of Russia somehow. Uh, we have uh, agreed with the Ukrainians to have a land bridge to Crimea, our historic port on the Black Sea uh, that will uh, you know, be patrolled by joint forces or international forces. Um, if he, he, he could go back and say, yes, that was the, that's the purpose of our, uh, you know, his euphemism, special military operation, which obviously is, is less than what he would describe as a full-on war, even though he engaged in a full-on war. Um, he could go back and say, yes, I, I've, I've brought back this historic part of Russia to, uh, to the motherland, and um, uh, and all of, and all Russians should feel happy about that. So um, I, I think he I think that would be uh, something that he could sell to the Russian people um, and get out there, you know, without completely losing face. Well, Rick, as you also noted, you know, you, you've spent time with Putin. You've interviewed the man and understand his thinking if that's the way this conflict ended does he stop there and if not before his time whenever that is is up as the leader of russia and he's held on for a hell of a long time inside their political system 
then what does Putin's ultimate legacy look like? What does he want it to look like? And what does that mean for the future of relations between Russia and the West? So um, I'm going to go up to 30,000 feet, Miles. So uh, there's something I think of as the George Kennan continuum on American views of Russia. Kennan, of course, was the famous State Department diplomat who was ambassador to Moscow, He's an expert in Russian history, wrote the famous long telegram uh, under a pseudonym. You know about pseudonyms under the... Uh, I sure do. Not, yeah, yeah. Ken, he, you know, Kennan was an inspiration. <laughs> yeah, so he was, yeah, so it was signed X in foreign policy. Yeah. And, um, and so, the, you know, Kennan, you know, the thing that I think in a weird, weird way that we can all agree on... Or that when I finally read it all, it's, you know, Kennan's idea is that, Rush, that the Russian character is a thousand years old and that uh, Russia's insecurity around its borders is a thousand years old. And Russia feels most secure when the countries around it are least secure. That's part of why Putin invaded Ukraine and that kind of historical uh, idea of Russian, uh, you know, needing more space. Um, and that, but the continuum is, you know, you know, uh, Cannon always felt like you have to be super, super tough with the Russians. You can't give them an inch. You have to, you have to always punch back. But the other end of the continuum is people and reasonable people and politicians and states people that we both admire would say, no, the, the Russian problem is insecurity. And the reason they behave that way is that we don't treat them as equals. We don't treat them as kind of civilized members of society. And that's the reason they're always kind of trying to break out of their, their boundaries. And, and, you know, again, I go back to my interview with Putin, where he said in the interview, like, you people in the West think of Russians as monkeys. That's, he, that, he said that. And so that insecurity is very close to the surface. And, and, and in diplomacy, as I've seen, it does go a long way to, you know, treat the, you know, have the Russians at the table. So that's the continuum. Um, uh, so the question is whether, so the, the hardliners would say, yeah, unless we really punish him, he's going to do it again. Uh, the softliners would say, well, unless we, if we don't treat him with respect, you know, he may do it again. Um, I think that the, 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 there's some logic to the people who say the lesson that he took from Crimea was, the West didn't do anything. NATO didn't do anything. Nobody raised a finger. People, you know, you know, uh, uh, there was a lot of hand wringing, uh, but nothing really happened. So now I'm going for the whole Megillah. Um, you can't say that this time about his invasion of Ukraine, where he tried to go for the whole thing. I mean, it, he's been brutalized. The the all of NATO has been unified and engaged. All of, you know, the European Union has, is more engaged. Uh, he's suffered all kinds of uh, deprivations and casualties. He hasn't achieved his war aims. I mean, he achieved his aims in, in uh, Crimea within a few weeks. Um, you know, he was frustrated in, in his, his idea that he would invade, that he would capture Kiev. He was frustrated in the idea that Ukrainians would greet the Russians with flowers. So, so... I think he, Putin has had enough punishment, has had enough kind of lessons in this that I personally, and, and I've said already, I've been wrong about him many times, uh, that he won't try something even larger uh, down the road. And I think he's got to be worried about his domestic audience. 
you know, as more body bags come back, as you know, even though the you know the, the domestic polls still show that he's popular, and that you know that changes too. Uh, particularly, the longer it takes for him to achieve his war aims and for him to go back to the country and say, "Yeah, look, I I, I did what I promised." He hasn't been able to do that. I, I want to look with you at both silver linings and and storm clouds here on the horizon. On the side of silver linings, I want to ask you about uh, NATO and what this conflict has done potentially to bring a fractured alliance back together. And on the storm cloud side, I want to get your take on what we've seen in terms of disinformation and, and, and how in some ways this conflict has showed how bad the disinformation problem is around the world and how rapidly it can brainwash whole populations and have uh, really perverse effects. But let's start on the silver lining side. What do you make of uh, you know, NATO's response to this? What does it mean for the future of the Western Democratic Alliance? I, I think it's definitely strengthened NATO and um, in, in, in some unintended ways, in some ways even that stem from uh, you know, uh, President Trump's kind of uh, crazy and hilarious uh, complaints that NATO countries weren't paying their dues. Uh, he obviously didn't understand how NATO operates, but what he meant was, uh, given the benefit of the doubt, that uh, this goal that every NATO country should spend 2% of its GDP on the military wasn't being met by certain countries. Um, Notably, Germany, the wealthiest country uh, in NATO and the EU. Well, now Germany is surpassing the 2% limit. And who caused that to happen? Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the Chancellor Stoltz, you know, boosted it up in this last budget over, over 2%. That's great for NATO. That's, you know, that's, that's the European countries. Uh, working for their own defense. I think that the, the, the French idea that uh, NATO countries each can't depend on the U.S. so much, I think that's a strong and positive idea. And, and now what we're going to see is, you know, it's just, a, uh, it seems almost a, a, a certain bet that Finland and Sweden are, gonna, are going to join NATO. I mean, what caused that? Putin's invasion of Ukraine has caused that. So is there a silver lining to that? I, you know, that would be one of them. So um, I think a, a, a stronger, more robust NATO uh, with the U.S. as a partner and less dependent on the U.S., I think is a very strong and, and powerful thing. And, I, and Putin, you know, has caused that. Um, um, you know, on the disinformation front, I mean, you're, I think you're alluding to something that I th- think we've talked about before. Um, you know, we, we I- I in America and in the West think, yes, the entire world is, is united against Putin. But, you know, there's the two largest countries in the world that, you know, ha- when their combined population is put together, have a lot more people than the West, China and India. Uh, have a different take on it. I mean, China has a, you know, the, uh, the great wall not allowing them to get news from outside and, and China, and Chinese media, Chinese social media, Chinese state paid influencers have basically been supportive of, uh, Putin's rationale for invading Ukraine. That's a lot of people who 
uh, are sympathetic to the Russian point of view. Um, India, which has been a longtime ally uh, of Russia, uh, also in the United Nations. I mean, they are they are also, um, you know, hesitant to criticize Putin. There are other countries that are that are hesitant to hesitant to criticize Putin, African countries where they have Russian investments or they buy Russian oil. So this idea that it's kind of the condemnation of Putin is universal is really a misnomer. And it's a little bit of a kind of a, our own uh, media narcissism where we think that, you know, because we see something everybody else does. Well, they don't. Of, of Putin, um, j- jumping back for one second, we had a good question from a listener here submitted that says, how does Putin deal with the embarrassment of how, quote, weak the Russian army is? So as we're talking about NATO emerging from this potentially in a position of strength, how, how do you think Putin responds to that um, and, and how weak this has made his military look? It goes a little bit back to the question of saving face, but I, I wonder if this means uh, you know, he's going to call up the reserves and double down. Does he have to try to make his military look stronger before the end of this? Uh, what do you think that looks like? Well, it's a good question, but I, I guess I would quarrel a little bit with the premise of the question because I don't think, you know, his main audience, which is this domestic audience, don't think the Russian military has failed. I mean, he says every, every time he speaks, uh, you know, we're, everything's going according to plan. Everything's going according to our mission. Um you know, most Russians are getting the impression that the, you know, the war is going well and the war is going as planned. And so, um, I, 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 you know, to the how much does he acknowledge it personally? You know, that's something I, 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 I don't know. I saw uh, the other day there was reported that General uh, Gerasimov, who is a, who is kind of Putin's. Um, military whisperer and is sort of the author of, of us, us folks in the disinformation world, what are called the Gerasimov Doctrine of War, which is the, this idea that four-fifths of conflict is not kinetic. It's all information warfare. I mean, he was one of the earliest pioneers of that. And Putin sent him to Ukraine to see what was going on. I mean, you know, that isn't a healthy sign that things are going well when you have like your top guy uh, you know, going to visit the, the battlefield. But, but I think, you know, Putin doesn't, he doesn't have, there isn't a sense within Russia that the military is failing. Um, and I think he doesn't, he doesn't have to deal with it the way you would in a democracy where, you know, at a press conference, you know, the reporter for the New York Times or CNN says, Mr. President, how, how do you feel about the you know, the failure of your military to do X or Y. I mean, Putin doesn't get questions like that. It isn't in the Russian state media. So um, I don't think he's had to have, he, does, he hasn't had to reckon with it yet in a, in a public way. I mean, he, I assume he's reckoning with it in, in a military way by, as you say, I mean, is he calling up new uh, people? Because he hasn't called it a war, he, can't, he hasn't been able to initiate a draft. Seems like he doesn't want to. So, um, you know, that's that's another thing that he's sort of, you know, kicking, kicking down the road. What domestic lessons have we learned here on the disinformation front? And I say that wanting to really replay an anecdote that 
I've been using a lot lately because it just was so mind blowing to me. And that was at the beginning of the conflict, as you remember, Rick, the Russians put out this very silly and false notion that one of the reasons for the invasion was that the United States was operating secret bioweapons laboratories in Ukraine. It was a conspiracy theory spread on Twitter. But in a poll that was done about two weeks ago by YouGov, they found that in the span of the six weeks since that conspiracy theory had come out, um, more than one in four American adults believed it was very probably true or probably true. So we yeah. went from a stupid fringe conspiracy theory about U.S. bioweapons labs that don't exist to millions and millions of Americans believing it. I mean, wh what should we be taking away from that when we look at our own disinformation problems here at home? Yes. Well, um, you know, I've done a fair amount of reading about conspiracy theories and how they work. And um, part of the way they work is that when people don't have a lot of knowledge, when they feel insecure, uh, when they can't understand something, when they feel ostracized, um, they're they're more susceptible to explanations that are not plausible, but that seem to solve everything. And so um, I, I think that the you know, this is an area that Americans don't know a lot about Ukraine. Uh, they don't know a lot about our relationship with Ukraine. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen, you know, kind of forcible. I may be wrong about this forcible uh, comment from the U.S. government saying this is absurd and, and hasn't happened. And so, um, you know, conspiracy theories love a vacuum. And so I think unless they're they're sort of stamped out or rebutted or pre-butted, uh, earlier on, those those kinds of things can flourish. And, um, and and, you know, by the way, I mean, in Russia, where where basically something like 90 percent of Russians get 90 percent of their information from state media, those things just that just that's a fact to the Russian audience, not even a conspiracy theater that they may or may not want to believe. And and so and so part of it, you know, the lesson in a way, I mean, we have a we have a diverse audience and you know and that's what democracies are all about and i generally think that's a good thing i mean the the russian audience is is pretty um uh homogeneous and um and again that's what putin worries about i remember when i went to i went to russia a couple of times when i was in the state department and i um and went, and before you go to russia when you're in government and miles you know this i mean you know, people from the intelligence community come and, you know, tell you what you should do and what you should not do. And, if, and the first thing is you can't take your phone, you can't take your computer, uh, you know, your hotel room will be searched, you know, strangers will come up to you and make offers to you. Um, and, you know, it's a hostile information environment as it's described. But I remember one of the intelligence officers briefing me in, about Russia and saying, telling me this anecdote, which just I, I found amazing, which was um, that, you know, as some Russians, particularly during the oil boom, became wealthier under Putin's early years and Russians started traveling abroad, their first and primary surprise when they left Russia and went to Europe or elsewhere in the world was they were surprised that people didn't speak Russian. Like, well, you know, do you, I, don't, I don't wonder why... Russians believe what they get from state media. It's yeah. it's a, they're sealed off from the world. It's not like they're getting stuff and th and realizing that you know, you know, 
Nobody in France speaks Russian. Nobody in England speaks Russian. You know, you come to America, they were surprised when they wouldn't see Russian menus when they went to restaurants. So, so it's like, well, that's why Putin is successful with his domestic audience. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, the comments you made earlier about disinformation are, are interesting to me because uh, part of the idea of fighting back against disinformation requires that everyone, the elites in the system, agree that it needs to be combated. And we saw something really interesting in the past week here, which is that, uh, you know, President Biden's Department of Homeland Security has you know, rightfully tried to go after the disinformation problem. But it's a very thorny one to wade into because a lot of disinformation out there spread by foreign governments is political. And so it would seem that any effort to thwart disinformation requires wading into some really thorny issues, political issues and and falsehoods that are being spread online. And so unsurprisingly, you had a bunch of conservative senators and congressmen on Capitol Hill in the past week that branded the new DHS disinformation governance board as a sort of Orwellian 1984 ministry of truth. Mm. And now there's deep, deep disagreement within the U.S. government about whether there is even a legitimate function for an office that's designed to track efforts by foreign adversaries to sow disinformation and and to thwart it, because now part of the political system sees it as an effort to combat free speech, which you know, again, it's highly misleading. That's not the genesis behind it. But um, but now we're not even talking about actually joining forces to combat, you know, combat misinformation. Now, you know, you've got a lot of Republicans saying this is an Orwellian ministry of truth. How, how do you how do we untangle yeah. something now, like that? I, that seems to be deeply detrimental to the overall cause of trying to fight back against disinfo. Yes, I, it, it's a hard problem, Miles. You, you've summarized it really well. Um Look, do I think that we should make efforts to prevent foreign and hostile countries from uh, sowing and seeding disinformation into our domestic political system? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think of it as an act of war. Um, but at the same time, do I understand that it's a particularly sensitive area uh, when it comes to First Amendment issues, when it comes to domestic uh the domestic media space, um, and I would hope there would be some kind of reasonable um, meeting of minds. I mean, it certainly it was not a ministry of truth, which is a, which is, a, you know, just just to, not to put too fine a point on it. A ministry of truth would be a part of the federal government that creates propaganda. That's not what what this is, um, but. Um, but I just also sometimes think maybe, it, you know, that was the way it was presented and rolled out. And there's certain buzzwords that, as you know, get people on the right uh, agitated. Um, uh, you know, there might have been a, 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 a better way to do it. Um, I, I think the mission and I, I mean, I think even the, you know, the conservative Republican senators who objected to it uh, would not say they're in favor of allowing uh hostile foreign powers to, uh, you know, do what the Russians did in 2016 and create a, uh, you know, a, a, a troll farm that targets uh, American voters. I mean, nobody's in favor of that. The question is, how do we how do we get some uh, 
uh, unanimity on that. And, you know, that's, that's a hard question. And, but, but I do think it's, it's something that's important for the Republic, because I think one of the lessons of 2016 and 2020 is that the U.S. is kind of, uh, it's open season in the U.S. I mean, it wasn't just the Russians, it was the Iranians. Uh, uh, I don't even want to mention other names of, of other countries that uh, suddenly, you know, feel like this is a, this is a free space for us. And, and with, the, with the American-created social media platforms, we, we can do this to our heart's content and not get caught. Yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, on the on the DHS question, you know, I, I'm not sure what the right answer is at this point. It may be at the you know, uh, it may have become so partisan that they need a, a rebrand or a reset, because when I was in government, the problem is exactly as you described it, Rick. And that is, you know, we had very consistent intelligence, a steady stream of intelligence that our adversaries were basically creating uh you know, disinformation campaigns, weaponizing it online to try to pit Americans against each other. So, you know, the, and this is all fact, right, is that they tried to, you know, they would pose as uh, either, you know, activists in the black community or on the other side, they would pose as white supremacists and they would try to falsely inflame, um, you know, tension between yeah. Americans to sow discord in our country just for the purposes of dividing the country and undermining the democratic process. When you have clear intelligence and evidence that that's happening it's of course incumbent upon the government to shine a light on it say it's happening uh and to thwart it and and i'm sure that's what the intention of the biden administration was is let's create an apparatus to call out when this is happening not to engage in domestic debates and say one politician or the other is spreading disinformation that certainly wasn't the goal but you know now that things have been warped that direction it probably needs to be reconsidered how that you know, organization is named and, and framed, but the underlying problem is still there. I mean, as you and I speak in real time, you've got Russian troll farms and like you said, the Iranians and the Chinese and others actively working to identify flashpoints in American politics, creating online social media personas to push back, and, you know, to try to further those uh, narratives. And, um, and in a lot of ways, you could say it's been very successful. I mean, they've been very successful at further fanning the flames of division uh, in our country, and it's it's become a very difficult national security challenge. So, so Miles, let me let me throw it back at you. How how you you know you were there, um, you were at DHS. How how if you know if you can either put the genie back in the bottle or rebrand it? I mean, how would you how would yeah. you do that now to kind of make it make it potentially bipartisan? Well, at, at first, I would say there's there is a big challenge. When we see these things come in as a government, um, there's a tension and a tension between the investigative and the preventative sides of government. And by that, I mean, if you received an intelligence report and I'm making this up, but that, uh, you know, you had a Russian troll farm of 100 people in an office building in, in Moscow, you know, pretending to be Americans on social media and trying to organize a, a massive violent protest in the United States. Um you would have part of the government, like the Department of Homeland Security, maybe the intelligence community say, wow, let's shine a light on this, declassify the intelligence and expose it. Let's expose it and show that the Russians are mm-hmm. trying to you know, wreak havoc in the United States. But you might have another side of the government, the FBI, that would rightfully say, no, 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 we need to take our time. We need to investigate this because our goal should be 
to shut it down and potentially prosecute those involved, even though most of those Russians will never see an American courtroom. Um, there may be some value into mapping out their infrastructure, burning it down and, and, and leveling sh- sanctions. So just that tension alone puts us on a very flat foot as a federal government, because then you've got a back and forth multi-week, maybe multi-month period where you're not sure how to respond. And in the meantime, the bad guys have already gone out there and done their job. They've yeah. already gone out there. They've been actively engaged. So at a minimum, you know, I think there has to be an apparatus within these departments uh, like DHS and others, probably better if it's an interagency body that sits there and says, all right, in real time, here's what we're seeing. We need to make rapid decisions about exposing who's behind this while still preserving our ability to shut it down, either through overt means or maybe it's other means um, to go shut down that infrastructure to stop it from happening. But but certainly transparency there is key, because one thing I will say is that when the American people find out that the government has known about something like this for weeks or months or even years and they weren't told, that's where more conspiracy theories actually flourish. And I think we saw some of that with Russian intervention and and the slowness to expose some of that publicly is it allowed a whole new crop of conspiracy theories to come out there compounding the problem further. So I guess the short answer is you really need an interagency approach. And, and my personal view is it's got to lean towards attribution and consequences. In other words, exposing the bad guys, yeah. and delivering consequences against them swiftly so that the rushes of the world know not to do it again. And I think we've been very bad at that. We've been very bad at delivering swift consequences for disinformation. I don't know what's your take, Rick. No, I think that absolutely makes sense. And um, I mean, there is a kind of mechanism in government that that uh, we helped create just as as Obama was leaving office, which is the Global Engagement Center, which sits nominally at the State Department, but is an interagency group that is, is their goal is to expose disinformation from wherever it emanates, from, from all around the world. I mean, there was the, it was uh, motivated by, uh, the, by the Russian disinformation we saw in 2016, but it was created by uh, bipartisan legislation, Senator Portman and Senator Murphy from Connecticut. Um, you know, in a way, they have the, um, the, the kind of right to, to do this kind of thing in the eyes of both people in government and I would say the public because it's interagency, it's bipartisan, it's apolitical. Um, that's sort of, that's, that's, the, that's the only way to really do this without, without getting into kind of bad politics, I think. Yeah. Well, Rick, I, I recognize I've taken us uh, close to overtime here. I want to ask you a final question and a big one. Feel free to take this whatever direction you want. But, uh, you know, I, I titled our episode The Evil Empire Strikes Back, of course, a reference to Reagan's characterization of the Soviet Union as an evil empire. Um, there's a big strategic question here that's on everyone's minds, and that is, you know, is the West barreling towards a new Cold War or Cold War Two, or are we already in it? I mean, are we already in a new Cold War? And and if so, uh, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And regardless of who's in the White House, Republican or Democrat, what's this going to mean in terms of foreign policy decision making in the coming years about how to position ourselves? Well, I, 
it is a big question, Miles, and I and I do think we're already in it. Um, what it will end up looking like, I don't know. It is different than the than the old Cold War paradigm of the you know mutually assured destruction. Um, but but the making of Russia into a pariah from the West is already well advanced. You know what does that look like? You know you'll have all of the European countries eventually weaning themselves off of Russia oil and gas. Uh, that cripples Russia economically. Um, you know, Putin has always wanted to create failed states on his border and failed states in the Middle East. I mean, he's potentially creating a failed state at home. Um, you know, is he more dangerous when he's cornered? Yeah, I, I think that's true. What, what he will do, I don't know. But it's also larger just than just a sort of a Cold War. It's a Cold War... As, as you know, President Biden has often depicted it, this kind of existential crisis between democracy and autocracy. I mean, the, uh, you know, the number of nations that are becoming more democratic is decreasing every year. Uh, Freedom House, which measures this, I mean, I think it's gone, the number of fully democratic nations has decreased every year for the last 15 years. So you have authoritarian states like Russia, like China, that are basically saying to the people of the world and nations of the world is that, look, you know, democracy doesn't work very well. And, you know, look at the United States and all the troubles they have. Uh, you know, authoritarian nationalism, um, you know, authoritarian capitalism, illiberal democracy, call it what you want, works way better. And, you know, look at us. So, so that's this kind of existential uh, battle that's going on. And I think that's, you know, that'll last all of our lifetimes. I mean, you know, the Chinese, you know, the old saying, I mean, when they, when you ask them what time it is, they, they don't look at their watch, they look at the calendar. And, you know, they're, they're playing a very, very long game. Even in a strange way, Putin is too, because he's thinking about the thousand year history of, uh, of Russia. So um, I, I think we're in for a long uh, struggle. Um, you know, I think the West is strong and the West has reacted well. And, and I think Western values or democratic values are, are, are ones that, that people in their hearts are, are drawn to. I mean, that's, that's been true for, I think, 200 years. So um, I think it's a, it's a big existential issue. And I just want to say one thing, Miles, and I wanted to say it at the beginning. And, um, you know, you spent more time in government than I did. You were, you, you know, as a young man, you were already in Washington in government. And one of the things that, that your own story shows and I, is that, and I think Americans don't understand, is that government is not those people in the Senate and in, in the House, you know, the, the representatives who run for election. It's not even people in the White House. It's people like you and even people like me who go to Washington because they want to accomplish something. They want to do something good. They want to serve, regardless of party. And so the, the people in the civil service, the people in all of these agencies, hundreds of thousands of people, they go in, they, every day they go in and they're trying to do something for the American people, regardless of party. And this, this uh, animus towards Washington, this Washington as a swamp, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not going to defend, you know, everybody who runs for office, but I am going to defend the people, the culture of that city and the people who work there 
and are, and are trying to do good for the American public every day. And it's sad to me, particularly under Trump, that that was part of his whole shtick that, you know, Washington was corrupt and people just buy into that. But they don't know that every day there are hundreds of thousands and millions of people, indeed, who are who are going into the office and working for the American people and trying to do a good job. And um, that's sad. If, if It'll be very sad if we lose that. Oh, Rick, I couldn't have picked a better note to end it on. I, I couldn't agree more. And I honestly think it's the difference between our system of government and our way of life and and those that we're uh, in conflict with around the world, uh, like authoritarian systems that are genuinely corrupt, where individuals are genuinely side dealing and undermining the uh, the people that they purport to represent. And it's just not the thing I think you or I have seen in American government. We, we don't see civil servants side dealing and stealing money. And certainly there's, you know, isolated incidents of corruption and we've got a lot of mechanisms of oversight and transparency to call that out but but by and large folks that go into government are trying to do the right thing and and when they see bad things you know we've got a lot of courageous people that uh that speak out and i do have to say on your account uh, i've got to commend you for continuing to speak up on some of these very hard issues this is about the most contentious environment i've ever seen for people to speak out publicly on issues, whether it's foreign and defense policy or domestic politics, it is a time of a lot of vitriol. And uh, and the more folks are unafraid to go out there and, and speak the truth, I think the better. So, uh, you know, Richard, I commend you for that. And, uh, you know, grateful that you continue to, to stand up on the issues of the day. Well, and Miles, you did it when it was an even riskier and more dangerous time. So I, I commend you for that. And, and uh, you know, and let's see if we can save the republic. <laughs> Well, thank you, good sir. Uh, Richard Stengel, former managing editor of Time Magazine, former Undersecretary of State, and uh, as we've determined, a expert generalist on many, many <laughs> things. Uh, I appreciate you joining us, Rick, and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Excellent. Thank you, Miles. It was, it was a pleasure. All right. And thank you, uh, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Speaking Up. We'll be back with more 